0: Welcome back. Thank you guys for coming. This is part 15 of extremist literature, um, going through the, the Jehovah's Witnesses book, Pure Worship of Jehovah. Uh, we left off on page 90, on paragraph 16. The subheading we left off on was, My servant David will become their shepherd. Now, I'm sure a lot of you guys have noticed who've been listening to this, that this book really goes in the weeds in a lot of places. It's it's genuinely hard to parse your way through it. It's hard for me to parse my way through it, and I am an ex-Jehovah's Witness. I know a lot about this religion, a lot. Um, I know more about this religion than a lot of the members do, uh, just about their doctrine and things. And it's genuinely hard to parse my way through. But, um, you know, hopefully... We'll make our way through, and we'll pick up a, a few good bits on the way. So let's, uh, let's hit paragraph 16. Here's the first one. It says, Jehovah, the supreme shepherd, deeply cares about the welfare of his sheep, his earthly worshipers. When he entrusts the care of his sheep to human, un- I'm sorry, to human under shepherds? It's a weird phrase. I've never heard. Those in positions of authority, he closely watches how they treat his sheep. Imagine then how Jehovah must have felt about the shepherds of Israel in Ezekiel's day. Those leaders shamelessly ruled with harshness and tyranny. As a result, the flock suffered with many abandoning pure worship. Okay. That's interesting. Um, so it says here, those leaders shamelessly ruled with harshness and tyranny. Hmm. Under shepherds. I think I'm going to have a lot more to say about that as time goes on. Let's move on to 17. It says, What would Jehovah do? I will demand an accounting, he said to the harsh rulers of Israel. He further promised, I will rescue my sheep. Jehovah always proves true to his word. In 607 BCE, now remember, their timelines are completely fucked up. That is not an accurate date. We know for a fact. In 607 BCE, he rescued his sheep by using the invading Babylonians to strip those selfish shepherds of rulership. Seventy years later, he rescued his sheep-like worshippers from Babylon and brought them back to their homeland so that they could restore true worship there. But Jehovah's sheep remained vulnerable, for they would continue under the domination of worldly powers. The appointed times of the nations run for many more centuries. Seventy years later, he rescued his sheep-like worshippers from Babylon and brought them back to their homeland so they could restore true worship there. I've mentioned this multiple times in this already, uh, in this series at least. Um, Just to mention it one more time, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses say that 607 BCE is the date, uh, what was it? It says... In 607 BCE, he rescued his sheep by using the invading Babylonians to strip those selfish shepherds of rulership. So, according to Jehovah's Witnesses, in 607 BCE, Babylon attacked Jerusalem, destroyed the city. And then 70 years later, it was built back up. And they they base their entire theology off of this. That's how they get to the year 1914 in the first place, saying Jesus came back that year. Um, we know that's incorrect because... We have uniform tablets, a just impeccable record-keeping from Babylon, from that time frame. And there's a whole thing about exactly how we know and how much evidence we have. It's a ridiculous amount of evidence. I mean, they, there have been books written on this subject by, for example, Carl Olaf Johnson wrote a lot about this, but the date is 586-587. BCE, not 606-607, as Jehovah's Witnesses claim. That's really important to make note of. Uh, Their entire timelines through this whole book are twisted around and set up to be exactly what they want them to be. So they picked the dates that they needed to have for their theology to work, and then they inserted them into this book. Okay, so that was 17. Let's hit 18. Back in 606 BCE, about a year after Jerusalem's destruction and decades before the Israelites were delivered from Babylonian exile, Jehovah inspired Ezekiel to relate a prophecy that reflects how deeply the Supreme Shepherd cares about the eternal welfare of his sheep. The prophecy describes how the Messianic ruler will shepherd Jehovah's sheep. Uh, And that's in italics, how the Messianic ruler will shepherd Jehovah's sheep. I'm not 100% sure what they're getting at here yet, but like I said, um, the year 606 and 607 and Jerusalem's fall and Babylon's attack and all that other good stuff, that all relates in their theology to Jesus coming back in 1914, and then it, it also links into Jesus hanging out for a few years, checking out some of the religions, and being like, you know what? Jehovah's Witnesses are on point in 1919, that year specifically, and he picked Jehovah's Witnesses as his chosen organization. Actually, he picked the Bible students in 1919, because Jehovah's Witnesses didn't exist until 1933, so it makes you wonder, um, are all Jehovah's Witnesses supposed to actually be Bible students? I don't know. Lots of questions there. Uh, That religion still exists to this day. If you didn't know that, then you should definitely look it up. It's pretty interesting. Anyway, um, maybe I'll do a video on it at some point. Okay, so it says the very last sentence, the prophecy describes how the Messianic ruler will shepherd Jehovah's sheep. So here's uh, paragraph 19, Uh, and it starts out with italics. It says, what the prophecy says. So I guess that's what this paragraph is supposed to be about. Tells us to read Ezekiel... Thirty-four, twenty-two to twenty-four. Let's give it a quick read because it's reasonably short. Um, It says, "I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend to them. He will tend them and be their shepherd." Okay, kind of repeating yourself here. Thank you, Bible. I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, I'm sure a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses have noticed me saying, or ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, have noticed me saying, I, the Lord, instead of I, Jehovah. And uh, just want to make note real quick, the reason for that is because I'm reading from the NIV Bible, the New International Version, not the New World Translation. Because I really honestly just do not trust. um, I don't trust Jehovah's Witnesses' translation of it. I don't know if it was sinister. I don't know if they inserted things uh, in there with bad intentions or not. But I feel like the Bible has been modified. um, And it no longer represents the author's original meaning. Um, I don't know that any Bible can, honestly. But I can tell you this. I've seen some verses in the New World Translation that have just fit Jehovah's Witnesses' ideology too well, and just so happened to be mistranslations. So, who knows? There's no telling. Uh, I I will tell you this, though, I'll just continue using NIV. As far as I'm concerned, we'll get, you know, as accurate a message as possible out of that one. Okay, so paragraph 19 starts out what the prophecy says in italics. It says, read Ezekiel 34 22-24, which is what we just read. Then it says, God will raise up one shepherd, quote unquote, whom he calls my servant David. The words one shepherd, along with the singular use of servant, imply that the ruler would not revive a dynasty of kings in David's line, but would be the one permanent heir of David. Okay, let me just step back and read that because I feel like there's something here. So it says... God will raise up one shepherd. Okay, you know what? Let me just read the verse again. I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend to them. The Lord will be their God and my servant David will be prince among them. And then the Jehovah's Witness stuff says, uh, Pure Worship of Jehovah book says... God will raise up one shepherd whom he calls my servant David. The words one shepherd, along with the singular use of servant, imply that the ruler would not revive a dynasty of kings in David's line, but would be the one permanent heir of David. The shepherd ruler will feed God's sheep and become a chieftain among them. Quote unquote. Jehovah will make a covenant of peace with his sheep. Blessings will pour down on them like the rains... And they will experience a delightful condition of security refreshing pro- prosperity and fruitfulness why peace will prevail not only among humans but also between humans and animals okay so reading from ezekiel 34 22 to 24 so it's talking about sheep here okay it's talking about a flock of sheep i'm going to take it you know as metaphor and say that flock of sheep is supposed to be people I don't know that for a fact, I'm just assuming based on, you know, what I'm reading here. Uh, Taking that as the assumption, it says, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. Okay, Uh, and then the book says that the singular use of servant implies that it's going to be a line of people, it's going to be from David's line, not... I guess, not revive a dynasty of kings in David's line, but would be the one permanent heir of David. Okay, I understand what they're saying here. They're saying the the one person who's going to come back and save God's people or whatever, uh, the person that's going to rule over God's people, that's a better way to put it, the person that's going to rule over God's people isn't going to be one single person. Uh, it's not going to be David, as this says, apparently, It's saying it's going to be a single person, but not David, specifically. It's going to be a person in David's line. And who do we know that's in David's line? Jesus. That's who they're talking about. So, they've taken this verse, which, as far as I can tell, has nothing to do with any of that. Doesn't relate to Jesus. Doesn't relate to any kind of prophecy of any sort, really. Uh, Just talking about something different. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have taken it upon themselves to prophesy, to interpret the Bible, to act as God's mouthpiece and prophesy that the Bible says here that uh, Jesus is going to rule over God's people since he's from David's line. I know they're going somewhere with this. I don't exactly know where they're going, but it's going to tie back into 1914, I'm sure of it. So let's continue on and see what it has to say. Okay, so here's paragraph 20. How the prophecy is fulfilled in italics. So that was uh, what the prophecy says, apparently, the, the last paragraph. This new one is how it's fulfilled. By calling this ruler my servant David, God pointed prophetically to Jesus, the descendant of David who has the legal right to rule. I don't feel like that's established based on what I've read here. Based on the verses that they've given me to read, I don't feel that it's established that it's Jesus. Maybe it is. I don't know. It's possible. Uh, okay, let's continue. When on earth, Jesus proved to be the fine shepherd, quote-unquote, giving his life in behalf of the sheep. But how is he a heavenly... But now he is a heavenly shepherd. Sorry. In 1914, God installed Jesus as king and entrusted him with the responsibility to shepherd and feed God's sheep on earth. Shortly afterward, in 1919, remember, I was just talking about this a second ago, the newly enthroned king appointed the faithful and discreet slave, quote-unquote, that's a Bible term, to feed the domestics. Uh, Faithful and discreet slave is basically uh, the governing body, I believe. It's either the governing body or it's anointed people, um, I think it's the governing body, to feed the domestics, and I guess the domestics are just normal Jehovah's Witnesses, typical Jehovah's Witnesses, God's loyal worshipers who have the heavenly or the earthly hope. Okay, so... This says, shortly afterward in 1919, the newly enthroned king appointed the faithful and discreet slave to feed the domestics, God's loyal worshipers, who have the heavenly or the earthly hope. So people who have the heavenly hope, quote unquote, are anointed people. Those are people who, once a year when communion for Jehovah's Witnesses rolls around, only anointed people eat the bread and drink the wine. Basically, every Catholic eats the bread and drinks the wine, if you're confirmed, I think. But with Jehovah's Witnesses, just anointed people, it's 144,000 people. We, they have not reached 144,000 people yet. I think they're they were counting at one point, but now I don't really think that the numbers are public. But it's based on what you feel. If you think you're anointed, then you're kind of put through these questions, and they determine if you're actually anointed or not. And, and then they, they say, okay, and you eat the bread and drink the wine at the next memorial, which is basically like their Easter. It changes from year to year based on the Jewish calendar. But anyway, so uh, it says here, God's loyal worshipers who have the heavenly or the earthly hope. So that means the faithful and discreet slave doesn't cover all anointed people because the faithful and discreet slave is looking out for the heavenly the people who have the heavenly hope also. So I would guess that would mean the governing body members, the faithful and discreet slave. And basically what the book here is saying is in 1914, God installed Jesus as king. And then in 1919, Jesus picked Jehovah's witnesses or the, you know, the rulers of that time as the faithful and discreet slave to provide quote unquote spiritual food for the members Um, and then in 1933, I think there was a hostile takeover by Joseph Rutherford and he fired a bunch of people and took everything over and changed the name, banned beards because he didn't want anybody reminded of the founder who had a big bushy beard, um, was an alcoholic, drank constantly, um, did a lot of shady stuff behind his wife's back for my understanding there's uh there's evidence to support this so anyway this is the guy who was picked by Jesus FYI just so you know anyway says under Christ's direction the faithful slave has kept God's sheep well fed with spiritual food this food has helped them to promote peace and security in the spiritual paradise that is now taking shape yeah i'm i'm sure of that that was paragraph 20 that's glorious Okay, just a quick note, on the side they have a picture, it looks like a guy standing on a hill with a staff, a shepherd presumably, and it's got some sheep, and it looks like sheep, but it it appears that one of them is a goat. Maybe I just can't, maybe I don't know how to identify goats by cartoon drawing, I don't know, maybe I'm just bad at it, but they have a whole thing about goats, Jehovah's Witnesses do, don't even get me started. Uh, Okay, so this is, uh, that was paragraph 20. Here's paragraph 21. It says, What do Ezekiel's words about a covenant of peace, quote unquote, and reigns of blessings mean for the future? In the coming new world, Jehovah's pure worshipers on earth will experience to the full the blessings of the covenant of peace. In a literal global paradise, faithful humans will never again be threatened by war, crime, famine, sickness, or wild animals are you not thrilled at the prospect of everlasting life on a paradise earth where God's sheep will dwell in security? So it says, where God's sheep will, quote, dwell in security with no one to make them afraid, unquote. Um, That's super interesting. This is really, really interesting to me, what they're saying here. First of all, I want to point out, they said, with a prospect of everlasting life. So I talked to my mom about this year, when I was little. This is, probably 20 years ago, when I was nine or 10, asked her about it, about everlasting life. And I was like, what if people choose to not love Jehovah in the new system? What if they're like, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. And she said, it's everlasting life. There's a difference between everlasting life and immortality. The angels are immortal, ostensibly, I guess, according to her god is immortal humans in the new system quote unquote the as they're putting it here the global literal global paradise humans in the literal global paradise they aren't going to be immortal they're going to have everlasting life so if they choose not to follow god or whatever then they can die that according to my mom, like I said, I don't know if that's official doctrine, but I do notice that they refer to people in paradise as having everlasting life. Jehovah's Witnesses do. Never immortality, for example. Um, I don't know if there's anything to that or not. It's just something to think about. Kind of interesting. Uh, something else I wanted to point out about this paragraph. So it says, in a literal global paradise, faithful humans will never again be threatened by war, crime, famine, sickness, blah, 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 right? That is one way in which Jehovah's Witnesses differ from a lot of other religions. Uh, So they think that there's going to be a global paradise, not that everyone's going to get to go to heaven. So in most, say, Methodist or Baptist or Catholic or whatever, they feel like, they feel like most people are going to go to heaven when they die. That is not the same with Jehovah's Witnesses. Only 144,000 anointed Jehovah's Witnesses are going to go to heaven. So the timeline works like this. you got the Great Tribulation. That's when all the governments go and attack people, right? They go and attack Jehovah's Witnesses specifically. They're trying to take them out. And then after the Great Tribulation um, is Armageddon. So, what happens is uh, Great Tribulation, and then that, that's when Jehovah's people are attacked by earthly governments, and then Armageddon takes place, right? And at the very start of Armageddon, all of the anointed people who just believe they're anointed, the 144,000 people, they're just raptured to heaven like that, as soon as Armageddon starts. And from that moment on, it's supposed to be God's war. So, the, the anointed people are now angels and they're outfitted with swords and given the task of coming to earth and killing every non-Jehovah's Witness, uh, every non-active Jehovah's Witness on the planet. We're talking 7 billion people. Like I said, 8.5 million Jehovah's Witnesses roughly subtracted from whatever the population is when this happens. Um, 7 billion people right now. Uh, So that's what that's what the governing body members are looking forward to. They're looking forward to this. I have come up with a plan though. I will let you guys in on my plan as long as you guys promise to protect me when this goes down. Then you can then we'll work together, okay? Here's the plan. I'm gonna build a bunker and line it with Jehovah's witnesses. We have to keep them alive though. Fireballs and angels won't be able to penetrate the Jehovah's Witness shell. So we'll all be safe. We'll all be completely safe if we build a bunker, line the walls with Jehovah's Witnesses. That's the plan. All right, so after Armageddon happens, after all these people are killed, seven billion dead bodies on on the planet. Next what happens is Jehovah's Witnesses, the living, active ones are tasked with helping people resurrect, basically. So God's going to be resurrecting Jehovah's Witnesses who died. And from my understanding, there's going to be a resurrection of the faithful and the unfaithful. So if you die in Armageddon, you're fucked. That's the bottom line. You're fucked. You're not coming back. But if you died before Armageddon and you didn't have a chance to hear about the good news or whatever, God will raise you up. You'll have an opportunity to hear him out and, and come to his side or whatever. So the, the surviving Jehovah's Witnesses will be tasked with helping them acclimate to the new surroundings, helping them get resurrected and figure things out, figure out what's happening. And then they're going to be tasked with burying the evidence of God's genocide. They're going to be tasked with burying the dead bodies, all seven billion of them. And what they can't manage to bury, birds will will eat. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. I'm saying that in a factual way, as factual as I can. I'm not trying to make it sound any better or worse than it is. That's just what they believe. Um, so <laughs> take it for what you will. Uh, then they live in a paradise, and then Satan is released for, I think, a thousand years, and allowed to tempt people from then on. And those who are tempted at the end of the thousand years are killed, Satan is killed again, finally. I guess Satan's killed finally. And then everybody lives happily ever after. That's their belief. I don't know, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, okay, so that one was 21. Let's hit 22. What can we learn from the prophecy is in italics. Like his father, Jesus deeply cares about the welfare of the sheep. The shepherd king sees it... I'm sorry. The shepherd king sees to it that his father's sheep are well fed spiritually and that they enjoy peace and security in the spiritual paradise. How reassuring is it to be under the care of such a ruler? Those... Uh, Those serving as under-shepherds, which I assume under-shepherds are like elders and circuit overseers and things, anybody that's not Jesus but still in the hierarchy of Jehovah's Witnesses, those serving as under-shepherds need to reflect Jesus' concern for the sheep. Elders are to shepherd the flock willingly and eagerly and to be examples that the sheep can imitate. Never would an elder want to mistreat one of Jehovah's sheep. Remember Jehovah's words to the harsh shepherds of Israel in Ezekiel's day. I will demand an accounting. The supreme shepherd keeps a close eye on how his sheep are treated, and so does his son. Okay. Well, that's nice. I mean, they're they're putting a message in here to Jehovah's Witness elders. You're responsible if you screw somebody over. Uh, you're responsible to Jehovah, so keep that in mind. Problem is, really, Jehovah's Witnesses rules about things. That's really what I have the issue with. Now, I know that there's corruption among the elder body. There's going to be corruption in anything, really, honestly. I mean, in just about any anything. Uh, politics today is just rife with corruption. I was just talking about this earlier. There's corruption everywhere. Um, that's to be expected, but Jehovah's Witnesses here are warning the elders that they're going to have to pay it forward when, you know, when Armageddon happens or whatever. That's an okay message. That's an acceptable message. What I have an issue with is Jehovah's Witnesses' policies in the first place, the ones that the elders are enforcing. I don't know that I can completely blame the elders uh, for the policies that they're enforcing here. I mean, they do some really messed up stuff in defense of the Watchtower Society, but honestly, I did too. Didn't we all? Do some messed up stuff? I shunned my brother for 10 years, 10 years. That's time I'll never get back. My siblings shunned me for years. My mom is still shunning me. We've all done terrible things for the Watchtower Society, for Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, all of the ex-Jehovah's Witnesses at least have. Are we really to blame for that? I don't think so. I think it was undue influence. I don't believe, I don't feel like I can take blame for that stuff. I can make up for the harm that I did, which is what I'm doing now, which is what all of you are doing now by learning about this stuff, by listening to people's stories, by talking about your own stories. That's, that is how you make up for what we did in the past. That's how it's done. By talking about it, by not defending this stuff, by calling it out when you see it now. But yeah, I, I can't blame the elders, really. Uh, some of this stuff is certainly the elders' fault. Some of the things that they do is pretty crooked. But I blame Jehovah's Witnesses, the religion, not the people. Uh, there's one more thing I wanted to touch on about this. It's said up top here. Um, the, shepherd, uh, the shepherd king sees to it that his father's sheep are well-fed spiritually, and that they enjoy peace and security in the spiritual paradise. I find it interesting that they said that. Um, What they're saying here is that Jehovah's Witnesses, the religion, or, you know, the governing body, the faithful and discreet slave and stuff, they see to it that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have lots of literature to read, basically. Lots of spiritual food is what they call it. What's interesting about that to me is the fact that they've started cutting back on their releases recently, in just the past few years. they When I was in it, they were releasing, I think it was, the Watchtower was um, on the first of the month and the 15th of the month, they'd release a Watchtower and an Awake twice a month, I feel like. Yeah, that sounds right. They'd release one every month, or I'm sorry, they'd release... A Watchtower and an Awake twice a month. And now I think it's once a month. And they came out with a study edition, uh, which is kind of not public. So you just, when you're going knocking on doors, you pass out the public version of the Watchtower and the Awake, if the Awake even still exists. I'm not even sure anymore. And when you're at the Kingdom Hall, you just read read the study edition of the Watchtower. That's not handed out to the public. It's easy to get your hands on right now, but they have created this pipeline of information that's not public, and that's, I've said this before, that's a step down the wrong road. Creating a pipeline of information that's safe from the public eye is a step down the wrong road for any religion, bottom line. Where you know, a system where you can give information to members, all members, not just, you know, people in the hierarchy who are trying to do their jobs. I mean, every member, indiscriminately, as long as they're a member, private information for all of them. Uh, That is one sign of a cult if I've ever seen it. Anyway, okay, so the next subheading is called David, my servant, will be their chieftain forever. Wow, we... We're moving pretty slow. I've been talking a lot tonight, I guess. So this is a uh, paragraph 23. It says, "Jehovah wants his worshipers to serve together in unity. In a prophecy about restoration, God promised that he would gather his people, representatives of both the two tribe kingdom of Judah and the 10 tribe kingdom of Israel, and reunite them as one nation, as if causing two sticks to become one in his hand." In a fulfillment, I'm sorry, in a fulfillment of the prophecy, God restored a united nation of Israel to the promised land in 537 BCE. That's an incorrect date, as I've mentioned. But that unity was only a token of a far grander and more lasting unity to come. After promising to unify Israel, Jehovah gave Ezekiel a prophecy about how the future ruler— now this is in italics— how the future ruler would bring true worshipers together earthwide. In a bond of unity that would last forever. I'm not really sure what they're talking about up there, where it says uh, God promised that He would gather His people, representatives of both the two-tribe kingdom of Judah and the ten-tribe kingdom of Israel. I'm not a hundred percent sure what they're talking about there. The two-tribe kingdom of Judah and the ten-tribe kingdom of Israel. Now, Israel did have twelve sons, twelve tribes, I believe. Uh, I'm not really sure how it relates. I'm just kind of spinning my wheels here. But if somebody has more information on it, like I said, just put it in the comments and we'll, you know, I'll pin it and we'll take a look at that. So that was paragraph 23. Here's paragraph 24. It says, what the prophecy says. So here's another prophecy that they're uh, that they're about to pull out. Read Ezekiel 37, 24 to 28. Let's take a quick glance at that. My servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever." My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their Lord God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. Okay, so here's what they say about those verses. Jehovah once again refers to the Messianic ruler as my servant David, quote unquote, one shepherd and chieftain. But now Jehovah also calls this promised one a king. What will this king rulership be like? His rule will be permanent in italics. The use of the terms forever and eternal suggests that there will be no end to the blessings of the king's rule. Uh, This is in italics now. His rule will be marked by unity. Under their one king, loyal subjects will follow the same judicial decisions and they will dwell on the land together. And here's italics again. His rule will bring the king's subjects, closer to Jehovah God. Jehovah will make a covenant of peace with these subjects. Jehovah will be their God, and they will be his people, and his sanctuary will be in their midst forever. So, once again, Jehovah's witnesses, or more accurately, I guess the governing body kind of, are extrapolating from these verses. They are prophesying and trying to tell the people what God meant when he wrote this stuff down. Of course, personally, I don't believe that God had any part in the Bible, if there is one at all. I think it was just, you know, a bunch of guys writing stuff down, and, you know, and it has no real significance past that. Um, but, you know, they're trying to extrapolate and they're trying to uh, prophesy and, and give these people information that isn't there to begin with. So they're taking these verses and reading into them further than the, the authors intended, uh, ostensibly, uh, presumably. Uh, they have a history of doing that with lots of different verses. Another thing Jehovah's Witnesses like to do is they like to take a verse from different books of the Bible and cram those verses next to each other and read them as a single verse and then say, look at that, see what the Bible says? They do that all the time. I'll give some examples at some point in, uh, like, on my main channel or something. Okay, so that was 24. Here's 25. How the prophecy is fulfilled. In 1919, remember, this is the year Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus picked them as the God's chosen religion. In 1919, faithful anointed ones were united under their one shepherd, the Messianic King Jesus Christ. Later, a great crowd from all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues became united with their anointed fellow believers. Ooh, this is getting interesting. Together, they've become one flock under one shepherd. Whether their hope is heavenly or earthly, they all obediently walk in Jehovah's judicial decisions. As a result, they dwell together in a spiritual paradise as a united worldwide brotherhood. Jehovah has blessed them with peace, and his sanctuary representing pure worship is among them. Jehovah is their God, and they are proud to be his worshipers now and forever. Okay, something I want to point out about Jehovah's Witnesses. This is unique to Jehovah's Witnesses. The, the way that this religion is structured is different than a lot of other religions. Um, and it, it just at first glance, you may not catch on to it. I didn't realize this until way later on, but they believe that the 144,000 anointed ones that I've been talking about, they believe they're r- really the only Christians, quote-unquote. They think that those are the only Christians in existence, the 144,000. And the, the people, the other Jehovah's Witnesses who are knocking on doors and doing all the legwork and everything for them, uh, they're just regular people who are saved through the anointed 144,000 people. They're part of the great crowd, basically. There's that separation. So if you were looking at it like a regular religion, like any other religion, say, um, let me think of a good example here. If you were comparing them to, I don't want to say Catholics, because that's actually a unique case in itself. If you were comparing them to Methodists, say, the only people that would be allowed to really get baptized, if Jehovah's Witnesses were Methodists, were would be 144,000 people total in the history of ever. That's it. And everybody else just kind of rides on the coattails of those baptized people for all intents and purposes. They're just part of a great crowd that kind of follows the, the Methodists around. So really, the only true Jehovah's Witnesses, the only true Christians are the anointed 144,000. Um, they don't really view it that way. That is how it is. But Jehovah's Witnesses, they view themselves as part of the religion. They view themselves as Christians and all of that other stuff, just like everybody else does. But that's how it's structured. That's how the hierarchy works, Um, just for future reference. Kind of an interesting bit, because they did mention um, a great crowd from all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues became united with their anointed fellow believers. Uh, Revelations 9, I'm sorry, Revelation 7, 9, that's what that verse is from. Uh, All Jehovah's Witnesses, with the exception of the 144,000 anointed, are part of that great crowd. Carrying palm branches and all that other good junk. So, anyway, we've got two paragraphs to go. Here's 26. What we can learn from the prophecy. We're privileged to be united in a world, worldwide brotherhood engaged in the pure worship of Jehovah. But that privilege brings with it a responsibility. We must contribute to the unity. Hence, all of us need to do our part to maintain harmony of belief and of action. To that end, we eagerly feed on the same spiritual food, hold the same scriptural standards of conduct, and share in the same vital work of kingdom preaching and disciple-making. The real key to our unity, however, is love. As we strive... Yeah, love. As if they know what that fucking word means. As we strive to cultivate and display love in its many facets, including empathy... Yeah, oh my god, this is killing me including empathy, compassion, and forgiveness, we contribute to our unity. Love, the Bible says, is a perfect bond of union. You have got to just love the hypocrisy that they just flagrantly display in all of their stuff. Like, complete lack of self-awareness. Like, they have no idea what's going on, the governing body. Something I wanted to touch on about this paragraph, it says... We must contribute to the unity. Hence, all of us need to do our part to maintain harmony of belief and of action. This is them trying to tell members that they want, they want their members to believe the same way exactly. There's no room for deviation. Uh, you can't pick and choose what you like. You either take the entire doctrine as it's written down, as fact, the governing body members, everything out of their mouths is fact, or they take your family away from you. That kind of thing. That's what you're dealing with here. Including, so it says, as we strive to cultivate and display love in its many facets, including empathy, compassion, and forgiveness, we contribute to our unity. I don't even know what to say about it. That's just outrageous. Okay, this is the last paragraph. It's uh, paragraph 27. How thankful we are for the messianic prophecies found in the book of Ezekiel. Reading and meditating on those prophecies teaches us that our beloved king, Jesus Christ, deserves our trust, has the legal right to rule, tenderly shepherds us, and will preserve us in a bond of unity that will last forever. How privileged we are to be the subjects of the messianic king. Let us remember that these messianic prophecies are part of an overall theme of restoration that is developed in the, I'm sorry, that is developed in the Bible book of Ezekiel. Jesus is the one through whom Jehovah collects together his people and restores pure worship among them. Just a quick side note. I love that they used through whom correctly. That actually legitimately makes me happy. Okay. In the following chapters of this publication, we will examine that thrilling theme of restoration and how it's developed in the book of Ezekiel. In the following chapters of this publication. Interesting. So that's the end of this chapter. Uh, that was the end of chapter eight. Yeah, that's 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 really fascinating to me. Just this whole chapter was really, really interesting, especially the last half of it. Um they really r- reveal their how out of touch they are with everything. So I don't know exactly how involved the governing body is, like w- what their level of involvement is in the writing process, but I do know that they're heavily involved in it. I know that they went through the Bible book of Ezekiel and took notes, all of them. I think there are like seven of them or something. They took notes, they discussed it, they worked out what they think each thing means, and then they sat down and they wrote out this whole thing about it, and then they sent it to the writing department. The writing department did what they did with it. That's my understanding of it. So I don't know how much of this completely out of touch, you know, feeling i from i'm getting from this is coming from the governing body members or how much of it's coming from the original writers but whoever wrote this it it, it just feels completely out of touch with reality with what's happening around them like they, they live on this cult compound in bethel separated from regular society completely They don't interact with regular society at all, except for when they're going and knocking on doors to spread the word. I don't even know if the governing body members do that or not. Probably not. But anyway, um, they're kind of looked at as celebrities. I wonder who they go in service with. Celebrities within Bethel, you know. Anyway, yeah, that was an interesting chapter. So there are some study questions at the end. Here's what Jehovah's Witnesses want us to think about after reading this chapter. Number one, what lesson did you learn from the prophetic riddle about the great eagles? That was in the last um, Extremist Literature podcast, in number 14. Then number two, explain how the messianic prophecies found in Ezekiel give you sound reasons to trust in the King Jesus Christ. And if you remember, they kind of used Jesus, Jehovah, Jehovah, the governing body, Jehovah's Witnesses, they use all that stuff interchangeably. So what they're saying when they want you to trust Jesus is they want you to trust them. That's really what they're saying here. And then number three, the final study question. How can... Go away, kitty, shoot, get. How can you contribute to the peace and unity of the spiritual paradise? Of course, the answer they want you to say here is... um. Shut your mouth and believe like everybody else. Believe and do everything else that everybody else does. It's so fascinating to, to, to read this stuff and see how they think, really. And it's so heartbreaking to know that people are buying this. But anyways, yeah, that was a really fascinating chapter. I appreciate you guys coming on and giving this a listen, and I will talk to you next week.